0: If you have your Bibles, we're continuing in our series today called A Praying Life. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. It's on page 2 of this Bible. Uh, I don't know what page it's on in your Bible, but it's probably page 1, 2, or 3 right around there. So open up to Genesis 3. I heard a story of a man who uh, went skydiving for the first time. And he was a little nervous. He got up in the plane, and the instructor said, there's no reason to be nervous. We've got lots of fail-safes built in. He says, so uh, this is an automatic deploying chute. There's a bungee cord that's tied to the plane, and when you get a safe distance away from the plane, the bungee cord will be fully stretched, and it will pull the ripcord on your chute. The chute will deploy, and you'll float down safely. Now, in the event that the bungee cord doesn't work, uh, you can manually pull that ripcord, cord. Just reach over. Don't panic. Whatever you do, don't panic. Just reach over, pull that ripcord, and your chute will deploy. Now, in the unlikely event that your chute still doesn't deploy, there's an emergency chute on the back. Reach back with your left hand. You'll feel a little cord back there. Just pull on that. The emergency chute will deploy. Just float down to that field right around there. You'll see, he says, and there'll be a man in a minivan waiting to pick you up and carry you back to headquarters. So the man, think he's got all this... These thoughts going around in his mind. He goes, "Okay, I got it." And automatic shoot, pull the rip cord, emergency shoot, minivan, got it. And so he, uh, when the time's right, he very nervously jumps out of the plane. And as he's falling away from the plane, the bungee cord stretch, 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 and it snaps, and doesn't pull the chute. And so the man uh, says a couple of words. Uh, probably "O" is the first one. I don't know what the second one is. And um, "Oh my," probably what he said. And Uh, And he goes, okay, wait, don't panic. The instructor said, don't panic, just pull the ripcord. So he reaches over and he pulls the ripcord, and nothing happens. And so now he's starting to panic. But then he remembers, okay, wait, there's an emergency chute. Where is it? It's on the back. Okay, left hand, pull the cord. He reaches back, and he pulls the cord, and nothing happens. And as he's plummeting to earth, he looks down in the field where he's supposed to land, and he goes, oh, great, and I bet the minivan won't be there either. (laughs) Isn't it true when things don't go like we think they should, that we can get cynical. Isn't it true that we can sometimes, if, we, if things go wrong or if life seems to constantly hand us a series of losses, we can easily get jaded and skeptical? And I think that works in our faith too, doesn't it? If, if we constantly pray for something and it's not answered, or if we feel like we're being obedient but God still doesn't send us that parachute that we need, can't we easily become cynical? I know I can. That's what we want to talk about today as we continue in our, story, our series called A Praying Life. We started this series last week. It's based on this book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And uh, each week we're looking at one section of this book. We're, we're preaching about uh, the scripture that's there uh, here on Sunday. And then about 300 people from Genesis are going through this with their connection groups. Uh, we've got a couple of connection groups that I just want to make you aware of if you're new and you haven't joined one. There's one in the second service that meets in the living room right across uh, the hall from here. So if you want to join one, you can show up there, and John and Kathy, I'm sure, or probably Kathy today, because John's in the tech booth, but Kathy would be happy to to greet you and have you be a part of that study group. And then there's one that meets on Sunday nights. You can find out more about our groups on the Genesis Church app or at genesischurch.me. But even if you're not in a group, you can be reading along. There's a a reading plan at the uh, Info Hub, and this book is about 10 bucks on Amazon right now, so you can pick one of those up. So, last week we said that prayer is more about just more than just saying the right things or even talking and listening. We said that prayer is relating to God the way that God wants us to relate to Him. And we said that the first thing we learned from Jesus about how God wants us to relate to Him is that we should relate to God like a child relates to his or her father. You may remember we looked at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray, Father. And that's where we stopped, right? We just stopped right there because we said Jesus wants us to relate to God like a child relates to his Father. And so this week we want to talk about what happens when we lose trust in our Father. And specifically how if we're not careful, we can easily become cynical in our prayer life. In fact, Miller says it this way in his book, the opposite of a childlike spirit is cynicism. And so if we think about what it means to pray like a child, the opposite of that is to be cynical. Now, in case you don't know the word cynicism, you probably understand the concept. Uh, Cynicism is an attitude characterized by a general distrust of one's motives. And so when we become cynical about prayer, it's usually because we don't believe, we don't understand, or we don't trust God's motives in our lives. And so think about how this plays out uh, with a parent-child relationship. A child will implicitly trust his or her parents, right? When parents uh, tell a little child something, think about a very little child, uh, she takes it as truth. If mom and dad says it, it must be true. When a stranger is around, the child will often cling to the parent's legs, right? We, We look for that to hold on to. Why? Because she trusts her parents. We're all born with this tendency to trust, and especially trust those that are closest to us. But over time, our trust will be betrayed. Not necessarily by our parents, but by someone. Someone will betray our trust. And and some of you have been betrayed more than others. Some of us have been betrayed more than other people. Now, parents will lie to their children, often just to protect them. Friends will tease and poke fun and maybe even bully. Brothers and sisters will manipulate for their own benefit. All the younger children say amen, right? But over time, as we grow, all of us, to some extent, will grow cynical. But what may surprise you is where cynicism comes from. Did you know that we can look back and we can see the exact moment in history where cynicism was born? It's captured for us in Scripture, it's right in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at the story. You know the scene. God created men and women, put them in a garden, a perfect place with perfect peace and perfect food and in perfect communion with God, but then the enemy enters the story and starts to make them question God's motives. You can find this starting in Genesis 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan, disguised as a serpent, stop right there. How do we know? this serpent is actually Satan in disguise. Well, if you want some extra reading this week, uh, go look at Revelation 12, 9, and you can see uh, where that comes from. So this serpent, uh, Satan disguised as a serpent, tells Adam and Eve, hey, God is holding out on you. God has something that you could have if you just chose disobedience. He has something that he doesn't want you to have, and it's available for the taking. And in just in a moment of honesty, have you ever felt that way? That God's holding out on you? That God's got something greater that He doesn't want you to have? You know, the serpent says if you just take this one step of disobedience, it's not gonna matter to God. And not only will it not matter, but you can show Him who's boss. Like You can show him uh, that you can be more like him. You can be more like God. And in Eve's mind and in Adam's mind, that was enough to create doubt about God's motives. What does he really think about me? What does he really want from my life? How does he really feel about me? And for the first time in history, people walked away from God because of that. Because they were cynical about God's motives. And we've been doing it ever since. Ever since that moment in the garden, all of us, at some point, we doubt God's motives, We turn away from him because we doubt that he has our sincere uh, best interest at heart, and we become cynical. So what's the problem with cynicism? Remember, cynicism is where we characterize one's motives. We start to disbelieve one's motives. And when we become cynical, we doubt that God is with us, like we just sang, that he's for us, and that he loves us, and that he delights in us. And that can either stop us from praying or It can create in us an attitude that prayer really doesn't matter. And so when God doesn't answer prayer, cynicism says, I knew it. I knew he didn't care. I knew he wouldn't answer that. And then even if we're cynical, when God does answer our prayer, we think, oh, well, you know what? That probably would have happened anyway, even if I hadn't prayed about it, that the praying itself made no difference at all. Paul Miller says it this way in his book. I love this. He says, if Satan can't stop you from praying, then he will try to rob you from the fruit of praying by dulling your soul. And then he says this, and this is one of my favorite lines in the entire book. He says, Satan cannot create, but he can corrupt. Satan cannot create, but he can corrupt. Now, here's one thing I love about a redeemer God. By the way, you know what redeeming means, right? Redeeming is like taking something of little or no value and exchanging it for something of greater value. Have you ever seen one of those... competitions or one of those challenges where somebody starts with a paperclip and they go try to find somebody to trade and they trade it for something else and they trade up and they eventually get like a new car or something. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're redeeming this paperclip. They're redeeming it for something of greater value. This is the God we serve. We serve a, a redeeming God, a God that wants to take something in our lives that has little or no value and turn it into something of great value. That's our redeeming God. Now here's what it means That we serve a redeeming God. Our God is a redeeming God. He can take any situation and see the good in it and use it for our good. Well, Jesus looks back at this interaction in the Garden of Eden and he actually wants to redeem it. He sees something in the serpent to be admired. He sees how wise he is, and this is what Jesus says. This is how Jesus teaches this moment. Okay, this is how you take something that's bad and turn it into something good. This is what a redeeming God does, all right? Matthew 10, 16. Jesus says, therefore, you should be as shrewd as snakes. And if you grew up in church, you probably heard it said, uh, be as wide, wise as serpents, right? as wise as the serpent in the garden. He goes, but, 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 as innocent as doves wise as serpents, shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. See, the overwhelming temptation when we are disappointed or let down or hurt is to lash out. You know, once we're hurt, we assume everyone is out to hurt us. So we harden our hearts and we become wiser. We become shrewder, right? We become more shrewd, but we also become tougher. And we resolve that we won't get fooled again. But when we lose that innocence, we lose the ability to really be surprised and delighted by God and by other people. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, those who can never be fooled can never be delighted because without self-forgetfulness, there can be no delight. And so when we, when we become cynical and we harden our shell around us, we lose the ability uh, to also be delighted. Delighted. And as Jesus suffered the agony of the cross, the scoffers around him tried to make him become cynical. They, they said, You say you're a prophet, so prophesy. Who hit you? You know, he, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? But Jesus couldn't hear them because he was so tuned in to what his father was saying to him in that moment. He was so tuned in for, to what his father wanted to do in that moment. Wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. And so all of us can become cynical at times. But Jesus wants to help restore us all to having a childlike spirit. And so how can we do that? How can we, even in a cynical world, by the way, we live in a cynical world, don't we? We live in a cynical culture. How can we, even in a cynical culture, how can we uh, have a childlike spirit? Well, there's four things that we see uh, in Scripture, at least four. Uh, These are four prayerful attitudes. If you grabbed a note card on your way in, you can fill these out. Uh, Four prayerful attitudes that we see in Scripture. Number one is this, is to be hopeful. Be hopeful. One of the things that we see in the ministry of Jesus, we watch Jesus as we see his ministry on earth. He goes around and he heals all of these people, physically heals all of these people on earth. But one of the things that we see in him, uh, which is a common thread, is he often brings hope before he brings healing. He wants people to hope before he will heal them. In John 5, uh, Jesus has an encounter with this man at Bethesda, and he sees this man and he realizes he's been this way, this lame man. He's been lame for 38 years. Now, my kids would look at me and say, I've been lame for 38 years, at least. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who actually can't walk. All right, He's been lame for 38 years, and we know Jesus loves him, and we know he has compassion for him. But the first question he asks this man seems insensitive. Jesus walks up to this man who can't walk and says, do you want to get well? Now, doesn't that seem a little harsh to you? I mean, if Jesus came up to you in your situation, with your hurt and your pain that you're experiencing right now and said, "Do you want to get well?" What would you say to him? You know, this man makes all kinds of excuses for why he's not yet well, but Jesus says Jesus wants to hear him say, "I want to get well." Why? Because he wants to bring hope before he brings healing. You know, how would you answer that question? You might say, "Well, duh, of course I want to get well. Look at me. I'm sitting here. I I, I can't get up. I can't do anything with my life." But you're being cynical. Take look deeper at what Jesus is doing. He wants us to verbalize what we want to see before he lets us see it. He wants us to say what we're hoping for before Jesus will let us see it. We see this when a royal official comes to Cana and tells Jesus about his son who is, who is dying back home in Capernaum. And Jesus hears him out, and then he says, go, your son is healed. And this man, not knowing if that's true, has to walk all the way back to Capernaum hoping that his son is actually healed, like Jesus says. He he does it to the disciples when there's 5,000 people gathered on a hillside and they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, we have to send these people home. There's nothing for them to eat. And Jesus says, you feed them. And they collect all the food. And all of the food that we're able to collect in these 5,000 people are, are a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. And Jesus says, all right, now sit them down in groups of 50 and 100. Make them sit down, and I'm gonna bless this food. And now you start handing it out. And you know the disciples are like, Start handing. This isn't going to take very long. It's like two loaves of bread and five fish, and and they start handing it out. But they're doing it. They're being obedient, and in the moment they're hoping. I hope this. I hope this lasts. I hope this works. I hope this works. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens is they have twelve baskets of food left over when everybody's done eating. And Jesus is just sitting there going, "I told you. You got to be hopeful. You got to be hopeful. You got to have hope." And then as Jesus' friend Lazarus lies in his tomb, and Jesus asks them to roll the stone away, Lazarus' sister Martha says, uh, it's going to smell in there. He's been in there for four days dead. Look what Jesus tells her in John eleven forty. 40. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you if you just hope, you will see the glory of God? Jesus said, you've got to have hope. You've got to have hope. If you want to see the glory of God, you've got to have hope. If you want to see healing, you've got to have hope. Some of us have become so cynical, we've become so afraid to hope that we will never get to see the glory of God this side of heaven because we've got no hope for seeing it. Paul Miller says it this way. He says, many of us believe in the Christian hope of ultimate redemption, but we breathe the cynical spirit of our age and we miss the heart of God. I don't want to miss the heart of God. So our first prayerful attitude is to be hopeful. The second one is to be thankful. To be thankful. Thankfulness is a great antidote for cynicism. Let me say it this way. It's hard to be truly thankful for someone or something and be cynical about it at the same time. Like one place we can really see this clearly in the New Testament is the writings of the Apostle Paul. And it's in almost every one of his letters. And what I thought I would do first is just like take you through about 20 verses in Paul's letters where he says, I'm thankful for you. I thank my God for you every time I think of you. I give thanks. I always give thanks. Give thanks in every moment. And I thought about that, and I thought, no, wait. There's one situation that just really brings this to light, and it's in Acts 16, We see Paul traveling with his ministry partner Silas, a man named Silas, and Paul and Silas run into a woman there, a woman named Lydia. Lydia is uh, from Theatria. Uh, She's a merchant. She deals in purple cloth, pretty specific. Uh, That's a pretty uh, narrow market uh, range, by the way, purple cloth. Um, But Paul shares the gospel with her, and she accepts Christ as Lord. By the way, this is the first documented Christian that we have in Europe, the first conversion that we have on the continent of Europe, if you can imagine that. All right? And so it's this woman named Lydia. And by the way, we then read in Revelation later that there's a church in Theatria, and we don't know of any disciples that ever traveled there. Lydia is the only person we know in Scripture that came from there. And so it's quite possible that this woman, Lydia, who was led to Christ by Paul and Silas, went and started this church in Theatria. Because the gospel doesn't follow any of the rules that people say it needs to follow, Right? And so Lydia, they run into Lydia, they have this great moment, and then they're going around preaching, and there's this person, this woman that's heckling them. She, she's yelling. Uh, everywhere they go and preach, this woman is yelling at them. And uh, this happens for like two or three days. And finally, Paul and Silas get, get sick of it, and they realize that she's demon-possessed, and they go and they perform an exorcism. They drive the demon out of her right here in, in Philippi. They're, they're traveling in Philippi. And they drive the demon out of her. And then all of a sudden, they get in big trouble because what they didn't realize is this woman was a fortune teller. She was owned by some powerful men, and these men were using her to earn an income. And now with the demon gone, she can't tell fortunes, and now they can't earn an income anymore. And so Paul and Silas are grabbed by these men and dragged before the authorities. And they're, uh, it says this in uh, Acts 16. It says that they were stripped down, beaten with rods, severely flogged, and thrown into prison. This is their uh, first experience in Philippi. This is Paul's first experience in Philippi. Strip naked, beaten, flogged, imprisoned. Strip naked, beaten, flogged, imprisoned. That's his introduction to Philippi. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes. Are there places you won't go anymore because something bad happened there? Are there, for example, restaurants where you had a bad experience, and you every time you think of that place, you throw up in your mouth a little bit, because you think about that, right? Like, you're never going back there. My wife and I, we have a... Re- 24 years ago, we went to this restaurant that served us cold pie, and we would have never been back. You don't even want to think about that place. And if I were Paul, that would be Philippi for me, right? I would wash my hands of that place. I would never want to be back there again. But, but look what he says in Philippians 1. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Think about this. If it were me, and maybe if it were you, every time I remember you, I think of the beatings I endured. Every time I remember you, I think of being stripped naked in front of that crowd. Every time I remember you, I think of the humiliation I suffered the first time we met. Every time I remember you, I remember that prison and what it smelled like on the inside. That's not what Paul says. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Look at this. From the first day until now, the first day that we just read about, I thank my God for you. Now you think, how? How can, how can he be thankful? How can he look back on that time and be thankful for the people in Philippi when all that happened to him. How can he just forget what happened there? How, how do you put that behind you and not be cynical about it? Watch this in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when you turn your eyes from circumstances and focus on what God is doing, like, it's easy to be thankful. When you choose to look at the places that God is working in your life instead of where he's failed you, You can't help but be thankful. So be hopeful. Be thankful. The third prayerful attitude is to be repentant. To be repentant. We have to have a serious view of our own sin if we're going to stop being cynical. We have to understand how our own sin hurts us, hurts God, and hurts others. All sin, Scripture says all sin is a result of being double-minded. James 4, eight says that you are double-minded when you sin. What does that mean? It means we think one thing about ourselves and our sin while thinking something entirely different about someone else and their sin. It means that we judge other people on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our good intentions. Here's what I mean. A husband who watches pornography but then gets upset that his wife is reading a romance novel is being double-minded. A person who is kind to someone to her face, but then gossips about her behind her back is double minded. And by the way, if someone gossips to you about someone else, they're gossiping to someone else about you, they're double minded. It's so easy to fall into the trap of complaining about someone else's sin without examining our own. We can be infuriated by another sin and be completely blind to ours. But watch what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How can we possibly, how do we do it? We do this all the time. How can we possibly look past the plank in our own eye to see only the sawdust in our brother's or sister's eye? The only way we can do that is that we're double-minded. And how do we solve that problem? We have to repent. We have to turn from our sin and turn back to God. Now, repent is not just that we feel bad about what we've done. It's not even that we apologize for what we've done. Repent means that we are walking towards sin and we turn away, we go the other way, we turn back towards God, that we, that we understand how much our sin has hurt someone else or how much our sin has impacted God and that we try to make amends for it and we work towards reconciling with everyone who's been involved. That's what repentance means. And, and, and the thing that we have to remember is that we can't change our hearts. We can't change our hearts to be repentant, but we can pray for a new heart. David did this in Psalm 51. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide my face from your sins and blot out all my iniquity. And then he says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's a picture of true repentance. We want God to take our heart and replace it with a pure one. Be hopeful. Be thankful. Be thankful. Be repentant. And the fourth one, um, for lack of a better word, I think, is to be looking. What do I mean by this? We want to be looking for the presence of Jesus in every situation. In every instance, in every bad situation, where we could start to become cynical, instead ask, where is Jesus in this? Paul Miller says it this way. He says, cynicism looks for the cracks in Christianity instead of looking for the presence of Jesus. And one of the reasons people become cynical is when they look up to Christian leaders who disappoint them. And this is tough, because I have to tell you, people can be disappointing. People are humans, and humans are no longer perfect ever since that moment back in Genesis 3. And if we start to put people up on a pedestal, even Christians, if we're looking up to anyone except Christ, we are going to be disappointed. Eventually, they will let us down, and then we can become cynical. Well, if he can fall, it can happen to anyone. Well, if she can't be faithful, how can I be faithful? We want to be winners, Even Christians, we want to be winners. And maybe we want to grow God's kingdom, but honestly, most of us are just as interested in growing our own kingdom as well. But not Jesus, because Jesus was humble. Jesus considered others above himself. Jesus was always and only looking for ways to grow his Father's kingdom. In Philippians 2, it says it this way Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And then Paul says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, in humility, like Jesus... Consider others greater than yourselves. That's something that we could all use more of. We could all be more humble. I love what Paul Miller says about humility. On page 97 of his book, he says, Humility makes you disappear, which is why we avoid it. No one is immune to pride. And think about Jesus' disciples. The men who had a front row seat to this humble rabbi's teachings and ministry, walking down the road arguing about, of all things, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? But the truth is that we have nothing to be proud about. We have every reason to be humble. I have every reason to be humble. Even those of us, especially those of us who are Christians, We have no reason at all to think that we're better than anybody. In fact, look what Scripture has to say about that as we close up in Ephesians 2. It says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan, our enemy, our mortal enemy. He said you were dead. You had that spirit. Uh, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Oh yeah, Steve, that sounds bad, but that's who I was. Who am I now? Because, because, (laughs) but because of his great love for us, one of the greatest greatest lines in all of Scripture, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. But God who is rich in mercy, that we had nothing to do with it, that we were saved not because of who we are and not because of what we did, but because we have a God who is rich in mercy and looked down and couldn't stand to see us dead in our sin anymore. And so he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Not that he's going to raise you up. You see that? This is Past tense, God raised you up with Christ and seated you in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have no reason to boast because if you are a Christian, you realize at some point in your life that you can't save yourself. You couldn't save yourself. You were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised you up. And if you're not a Christian, you can't save yourself. You are dead in your sin. And if you die while you're dead in your sin, you will be dead dead. But God is rich in mercy. And he can raise you up. And he desires to raise you up and seat you in the heavenly realms next to Christ. And because we have a great God who is rich in mercy, who is mighty to save, who wants to save us, not by our own works, but by grace alone through faith in Christ, because of that, no one can boast. And because the God who saved us is the same God that we serve while here on earth, there's no reason to be cynical. There's no reason to doubt his motives because he's already paid the ultimate price for us. And we can trust him. We can trust that he knows what's best. We can trust what he says. We can have faith. The faith of a little child when we pray and ask and seek. Let's do that right now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are a God who is rich in mercy. God, I stand here on this stage a product of your grace think about who I was, and I was dead in my sin and my trespasses. I was I was following the spirit of this world, but you are rich in mercy, and you raised me up. God, I'm seated at the right hand of Christ. I just can't, I can't even fathom that. Why would you do that? Why would you choose me? Lord, those of us in this room who've made that decision, why do you choose us? We don't understand, Lord. It's not from anything that we've done, but because you are so great, because you are rich in mercy. God, because of that, I just pray that you would help us to be more like a child, that we could throw off the cynicism that so often comes with this world and this culture, and that we could be hopeful and be thankful and be repentant and be looking for Jesus in every situation. Lord, give us faith to you. Jesus' name.